This is Abby Webster Moran, and you're listening to the season finale of season one of No Place Like Ohm. So the cool thing I guess I've discovered about this experience in podcasting is that you don't really necessarily need a lot of expensive equipment or setup. You know, you don't need some high tech recording room. I often record from my bed because it's full of soft surfaces. If my closet were cleaner and not so messy, uh, that's a common space I hear people sneak into. I sometimes record for my yoga studio like I am today. And there's a bit of an echo in the background that is not conducive to podcasting, but you know what? It doesn't ruin the experience for me or for the listener. And so I do it anyway. You could really even use your phone. Um, you know, there's like a few different voice recording apps out there, including GarageBand, which is honestly what I end up using on my laptop. I do use a microphone, um, an audio technica. I'll have to post a link to the equipment that I use in the show notes because, you know, I've had a few people ask me and I definitely have some friends out there that I think would make great podcasters who have some interesting lives. And so, yeah, if it's something that is, you know, weighing on your mind, I want to suggest that you check out Buzzsprout. That's the platform that I use. And as I said, you don't really need any equipment. And Buzzsprout has a ton of free resources, articles, tips, um, advice on equipment, starting at the low end, all the way up to the high end and somewhere in the middle. You know, it's been a really nice experience. I started this podcast in May earlier this year, 2020, and what has turned out to be quite an interesting year um, and a stressful year for a lot of us. You know, and yeah, I started with a simpler microphone. I upgraded along the way, but it was Buzzsprout, as I said, that really made everything pretty much easy. There's a really small monthly fee. It varies depending on how often you upload your uh, your shows. I started off so well doing one episode a week. That was my original intention was to do weekly episodes. And I think that first couple of months I did great. Um, but boy, when, when, uh, school, the school year hit for my kids in August, uh, you know, as I started this conversation, I said, you don't need a lot of fancy equipment to podcast. Turns out you do need a good amount of time to dedicate to it. You know, I knew that going in. I remember reaching out to my friend, Sarah Stevens. She has a podcast, The Beautiful Project. She also has a ton of other amazing, great sites. In fact, she was a guest on my show, the episode that we did, uh, Spiritual Bypassing. Anyway, I remember reaching out to Sarah when I first had this idea to do a podcast, as I knew she would give me this like straightforward, honest response, right? And she said, yeah, it's a time commitment, like, you know, conservatively six hours an episode. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And that was a conservative number because I've certainly spent more than six hours on certain episodes. And there have been a few times, of course, that I've spent less, but there's a lot of time involved with, you know, coming up with your ideas, interviewing your guests if you have them. And I usually do. Uh, some people just record and don't do a lot of editing 
and have very successful shows. I tend to like to produce my show and have, you know, I edit some things out. I tend to have coughing fits, for example. So I'll edit that out or I'll re-record my intro a hundred times sometimes. Okay. That's an exaggeration, but several times, um, you know, I'm just always trying to refine the process and fine tune it. It's been really cool that my son, Orion Moran, who's 16 years old, he wrote the intro music and so you get to hear a little a little bit of that, a little piece of his creativity every time you tune into my show. I often use his song as the outro, but I do, I have over the last several episodes, um, gone and purchased the rights to different artists, different music, um, just to kind of give a sample of something fresh and new to listen to at the end of the shows. So all that to say that it's been an interesting experience that I love. I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. This is the last episode of season one. I'm going to take... My intention is to take a little break and I really have some ideas on what I want to come back with in season two. Uh, but I think I'm going to go forward with a, a little less, um, expectation on my weekly schedule and probably be more realistic in talking about putting out, you know, once or twice a month, some new content, especially as we move into the busy holidays and all that jazz. So if you're thinking about it, check out Buzzsprout. And by the way, if you end up going through Buzzsprout as your platform, do me a favor and let them know that Abby from No Place Like Ohm sent you because then you and I are each going to get an Amazon gift card if you do that for me. So just a thought, there's lots of different platforms out there, but they create a website for you. Uh, You are able to track all of your statistics. It's been so bizarre and so cool to see listeners tuning in from literally everywhere all over the world. I have this little pocket of listeners in Dublin, Ireland, but there are listeners literally from Asia. And um, I, I can't even think off the top of my head, but that's kind of a neat thing to tune into and see. Shows you the number of downloads, helps you very effortlessly plug in your show to literally countless different uh, listening platforms, you know, Spotify and Apple podcast and you name it. So it makes it really easy and takes a lot of the legwork out of doing uh, and promoting your show so that you can just do what you love and talk about or talk with the people that you find interesting so you can produce your show and carry on. All right. That's enough about uh, who I use as my platform for podcasting and and kind of uh, how I got into into it earlier this year and on to the bulk of what we're going to talk about here today in the season finale. just a little clip of music, original music by Angela Meyer. The name of that song, Dirty Habits. It's a very fun, cute love song, but I thought it would be a nice nod to a recent uh, celebration of my own, celebrating a little past 90 days of alcohol-free, embracing that sober life in my household, along with my husband, who's coming up on a year. And, you know, it has me really reflecting a lot on my mental health and how beneficial it's been to my mental health. This week, uh, today's October 8th, the recording of this particular episode. And this week, I think it's the 4th through the 10th. 
is National Mental Health Awareness Week. If you follow the NAMI, the National Alliance on uh, Mental Illness, um, th- their site is the one who who I noticed uh, is is calling for this week of mental health awareness. And it we just came from September. September is National Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month. So the two things kind of roll into uh, uh, some similar subject matter here. You know, we don't shy away from from talking about the hard stuff here on this show. And today is no different. I want to shed light on a couple of things. The Semicolon Project, but also NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, their website and their resources specifically. You know, 2020 has been a real fucker of a year for everybody, hasn't it? And um, as you would imagine, uh, people's mental health um, is being taxed in ways like never before. And I see folks sharing the uh, suicide prevention hotline a lot. And it's one of those well-meaning things, you know, of course, we want to share that resource. But I want to tell you, you may not know, that even that hotline this year has been so overwhelmed and taxed. And even some of the mental health workers on the other line of that hotline are dealing with depression and mental illness. And there's been such an influx of calls that you can't always get through. You are sometimes put on hold. And I know when you're in a moment of crisis, you may not have those extra moments to find clarity and calmness when you are in need and in crisis in a mental health um, you know, crisis mode. And so I really wanted to highlight a couple of projects today. As I said, NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, their website is nami.org, N-A-M-I dot O-R-G. And they do have a helpline as well. Now I'm going to post all of this on my show notes, but their helpline, which is available now it's limited hours, so please note, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. until 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And that hotline uh, is 1-800-950-6264. They do have a free crisis counseling. Um, if you are in crisis, you can text NAMI, NAMI in all caps, to this number. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So text 741-741 is the number. And in the text uh, content, you would put NAMI for confidential free crisis counseling. So please save that in your notes to share um, or to keep in your own back pocket if mental illness is something uh, you struggle with or depression or thoughts of suicide or any um, of those overwhelming moments. I didn't know if um, some of you, I know a lot of you actually have heard of it, but some of you maybe have not heard of the Project Semicolon. Some of you maybe have noticed friends that have tattoos. I myself have a tiny one, but you can hardly see the semicolon. So it's actually something I want to have redone. Um, But if you don't know about it, I thought I'd share a little bit today as we're thinking about... um, 
these resources. Project Semicolon is an an American nonprofit organization. They've got a website and they do raise money for its advocacy of mental health wellness and its focus as an anti-suicide initiative. It was founded in 2013 and its aim is presenting hope and love to those who are struggling with depression, suicide, addiction, and self-harm, self-injury. They're known for encouraging people to tattoo the punctuation mark, the semicolon. It's a form of solidarity between people who are dealing with um, mental illness or, or even the death of someone from suicide. It's this reminder that your story doesn't have to end, right? When we see a semicolon in a story or in a sentence, we know that there's a pause, but that that sentence or that story is going to continue, and so that's kind of the the idea behind the semicolon itself. It was founded by Amy Bluell as a tribute to her father. He uh, died apparently by suicide in 2003. She has a really heartbreaking story. This young woman went through an incredible amount of trauma and abuse and um, an immense amount of suffering in her young life. Unfortunately, on March 23rd, 2017, at the young age of 31, uh, Miss Bluell did did pass away, and it was as a result of suicide. So she she did lose that battle, a lifelong battle after several failed attempts. But that tribute that she created to her father and that movement that she created lives on in every single one of us who um, who gives even just awareness, not that you have to to put the tattoo on your body, but to to notice what the movement is about and to have that awareness and sensitivity to people when you see this mark on their bodies, to know that it represents um, a struggle somewhere in their lives or a connection to someone in their lives that has really struggled with this um, this really dark, and scary place, this place where you start to feel, you know, isolated and alone. The mind is this tricky place, right? It can convince us of all kinds of things that aren't true. It's the same thing that can heal us and set us free. But when we are in times of great stress, uh, tremendous tension, crisis, trauma, um, you know, then our thoughts are are clouded and we get into these places that we don't know how to get out of. And when we start to recognize these signs, these, these overwhelming feelings, that's when it's a good time to reach out for some crisis counseling. So as I said, please keep the helpline as well as that, uh, text, uh, confidential free crisis counseling in your reach as a resource. So I saw someone post, I don't know, it's been a couple weeks ago now, something that really made me stop in my tracks. Someone posted the question, had you been successful in your suicide attempt, what would your date of death have been? That kind of made me, like my stomach drop as if I was on a roller coaster, which I hate roller coasters. It wasn't a fun feeling. It it made me stop in my tracks and, you know, I, I, it opened up dialogue on this young lady's post and there were lots of different answers, answers from 
several months ago to several years ago to, you know, a very short time ago. And you know what? I had my own answer to that question. It would have been 23 years ago, right around actually this time of year. And it's heavy to think about and heavy to talk about, but we suffer out loud so that others don't suffer in silence, if that makes sense. Or rather, rather than suffer, I should say we recover out loud so others don't suffer in silence. I, I have struggled with depression my entire life. I became um, clinically depressed around the age of seven. And so I've struggled, and I'm 44 now, I've struggled my entire life and continue to deal with depression. It's a lifelong deal for most of us. I manage it very well in a lot of different ways now, but I have been through lots of different journeys and side roads (laughs) and twists and turns along the way, as I'm sure many of you, if you've If you've also lived with depression, I'm sure many of you can relate in your own ways. So yeah, I'm 44 now. It was 23 years ago. I was a sophomore in college. I was at Illinois State University. I had attended junior college, uh, I think, I don't know, a year or two beforehand, but not all of my credits transferred, right? So I went as a sophomore and I was fully unprepared for what, you know, all of that freedom was going to be like. Again, I had been struggling with depression since a really early age, so I was completely unprepared for a lot of things, both emotionally, on a maturity level, you know, kind of list, make a list, and I, I, you know, wasn't ready. But there I was, um, having, you know, on some levels, the time of my life, exploring and finding that freedom and you know, how terrible I was at making boundaries for myself, all of these things. And I was in a theater group. That part was really cool. I participated in a play, but right before that musical started, um, and I I had not even been at school for all that long, I'm not even really sure what exactly triggered the depression but I started really having some severe mood swings and feelings of imbalance. I started to miss my mom terribly. You know, it's funny. You can't wait to get out of the house, right? You're, I think it was 19. I was 19 years old, maybe 20. Maybe I was 20. <laughs> well, let me think about this. I'm 44 now. And I said it was 23 years ago. So I was almost 21. Actually, I was almost 21. It was the year I turned 21. That's right. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was in a play, but I was having a lot of difficulty settling into being away from home alone. Of course, I, you know, all this newfound freedom started drinking super heavily and I've never been able to regulate that in my life. I always would definitely go too far with the drinking and, and certainly in those early days of early adulthood, um, you know, to the point of throwing up pretty much every single time I would drink to get drunk. I would throw up, you know, and start this whole thing, life of the party while I was drunk. But, you know, 
ridiculous when I look back and think about it, but that abuse of, of alcohol and probably pot at that time, probably not a lot of heavy drugs, but some, some pot here and there, maybe some psychedelics here and there. Um, but definitely, uh, an abuse of alcohol, which would feed into these really bad mood swings. And then I would get this huge level of anxiety where I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to go to classes and then I would freeze and not go to classes and, you know, all of these incomplete assignments pile up and, you know, you don't have someone holding your hand anymore, right? Like uh, my high school teachers, you know, would really kind of babysat me and I did great in high school, but it's because they would kind of push me to make sure I was getting all my shit done because I sure didn't do that on my own. You know, and all that freedom came crashing down on a very mentally ill young Abby. (laughs) And I don't remember. Let's see. I think maybe I had had a fight with a boyfriend. I had probably made some bad choices. I felt badly about it. My drinking was out of control. And I, I don't know. There was a particular day that my emotions got so out of control I felt like I was in so much pain that I just wanted it to end. And so I, and I lived alone at the time. I didn't have a roommate or if I did, she was away. I don't remember, but I I was definitely, I knew I was going to be alone the whole day. And so I locked my door and I turned up (laughs) the soundtrack that went with the movie, the reservoir dogs. I don't know, Little Green Bag, I remember playing on repeat a lot. Turned it up as loud as I could. I took every pill I could find in my room, which was mostly like a bunch of medication, right? Like cold meds and aspirin and Benadryl, I don't know, a bunch of stuff. I took and I swallowed it all. And I spent probably 20 minutes picking apart a big razor. And then when I finally got the razor free from the, from the disposable, uh, disposable shaving tool, I started cutting my wrists and I got deeper on my left side than my right. I was afraid, like, like the moment I cut into my skin, I started to feel this release, right? But I was afraid. I think deep in my psyche, I knew that I didn't want to die. I just wanted relief, relief from suffering. You know, most people, I would imagine when they're in that state of crisis, that's what we're looking for is just an end to this eternal cycle of suffering that is often self-perpetuated as, as a lot of it was in my own case. Granted, I had experienced a lot of trauma as a child and I just never dealt with it. I didn't have the proper tools to handle those things. And so I developed mental illness and didn't deal with it other than drinking too much. And so here I was 20, not 21 years old yet alone in my room. It was like in the middle of the day, right? It wasn't at night. I think it was mid morning or the middle of the day. I really don't know. And then I kept kind of digging on my wrists And then it felt like, oh, I started to bleed a lot more than I, I 
I realized I would, I think. And some sort of reality sort of snapped me back into the moment. And I became very upset and very afraid and very regretful, realizing that I didn't want to die. I just wanted an end to my suffering. And so I called my brother. (laughs) My brother was in Rockford, Illinois. I was at Illinois State in Bloomington. So he's like at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half away. I can't remember. And I'm crying and he's trying to understand what I'm saying. When he realizes what I'm saying, he gets very upset. But as always, kind of snaps into a clear way of communicating, tells me to hang up the phone and call campus security right away and let them know what I had done. And so I did. And, you know, (laughs) just like a scene from a stupid movie. I was so embarrassed. The, you know, EMTs show up and come into my room and people are out in the hallway and they patch me up and haul me off in that ride in the ambulance with, you know, the sirens and all that jazz. And I don't remember exactly how long I spent in the mental health ward, at least three or four days, but I feel like it was closer to a week. You know, it's it's such a weird experience. You're in the bathroom where the door doesn't go all the way down or all the way up so that they can see that you're not harming yourself in there. Someone comes in every few moments to ask if you still want to kill yourself. And, you you know, I just felt dumb. I had to drink this charcoal. They, you know, pump your stomach. You have to drink this charcoal and try to vomit all the things that you've ingested and hope that it didn't create lasting damage to your, you know, kidneys, liver, all these things. It was a bit of an awakening. It was a long time of self-reflection, trying to figure out, I think a lot of people have those feelings, those impulses, but what makes some of us choose to act on them? I did, fortunately, after that experience, begin to seek regular counseling in my life, which made a huge difference. You know, there's been different times in my life that I've done different things. In my late 20s, I, you know, went on antidepressants and some anti-anxiety drugs. Zoloft I was on for a good long time, and it definitely... I think was a useful tool for me for a while. It helped me regulate some things while I learned some coping skills, but it didn't make, you know, sure. I didn't feel anxious or sad or depressed, but I also didn't feel happy or joy or excited. I didn't feel anything. I was just really numb. So for me personally, I had to limit my time with that. And that was in my late twenties. And it was around that time that I discovered yoga and meditation and, you know, all of these kind of mindful ways of being. Now that doesn't mean that you can't have both. A lot of us need medication to keep some things regulated as well as mindful practices like yoga and conscious breathing and meditation. It's really important that we find what works for us, but that we communicate with our doctors, our counselors, 
that we seek out the help of professionals so that we really can find ways to find that balance and maintain our best lives. Because remember, when when things start to get out of balance, our mind is a tricky thing. It doesn't always tell us the truth. And so it's really helpful to have uh, some resources, some other people, some professionals who can really help you unpack what's going on to give you clarity. So with all that being said, I wanted to talk about some warning signs of mental illness. It's a good time, especially this week, Mental Illness Awareness Week. You know, it's a good time just to check in. We're all isolated right now more than ever. We're all under more stress with the pandemic, with social and civil unrest. And so on the NAMI, or no, excuse me, this is actually on the project semicolon.com website. I bet there are some of these resources on NAMI as well, but some warning signs of mental illness. Did you know that one in four adults experience a mental illness annually? So it's really common. You're not alone. One half of all mental illness begins by age 14, and 75% of it begins by age 24. So again, you're not alone if you're on the younger age side. You know, people think, oh, you're too young to be stressed out. Bullshit. There is stress out there for everybody. Major mental illnesses such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder rarely appear out of the blue, by the way. Most often family, friends, teachers, or individuals themselves begin to recognize small changes or a feeling that something maybe isn't quite right about their thinking or feelings or behavior before one of these illnesses appears in its full-blown form. So signs and symptoms, you know, if several of the following are occurring, it may be useful to follow up with a mental health professional. Withdrawal. Recent social withdrawal and loss of interest in others. I mean, some of that's been forced recently, but take a closer look at if that's a self-guided withdrawal and just kind of check in with that. A drop in functioning, like so an unusual drop in functioning at school or work or social activities like quitting sports or failing in school, difficulty performing familiar tasks at work. These things are something to be aware of, especially when several of these things on the list are checked off. Problems thinking like, you know, concentration, memory, brain fog. If you have an increased sensitivity to sight, sounds, smells, or touch, or like you're avoiding overstimulating sensations, that could be a sign. Apathy, this like loss of initiative or desire to participate in any activity. Feeling disconnected. Illogical thinking, like unusual or exaggerated beliefs about your personal powers to understand meanings or influence events. Illogical or like magical thinking, um, typical of childhood in an adult. Those are some things to kind of look for if uh, that's happening. You might think about talking that out with a professional. Nervousness, like really heightened nervousness, unusual behavior peculiar, uncharacteristic things. If you have a lot of big changes in your sleep or appetite um, or a decline in your personal care and mood changes that are rapid or dramatic, you know, one or two of those symptoms alone really doesn't 
really can't predict a mental illness, but if a person is experiencing several of these at one time and those symptoms are causing problems, severe problems in your ability to work or study or relate to others, then you really should be seen by a mental health professional. People with suicidal thoughts or intent or thoughts of harming others, you need immediate attention. So there's treatment available More than a decade of research around the world has shown that early intervention can often minimize or delay symptoms, prevent hospitalization, and improve your prognosis. Even if a person does not yet show clear signs of a diagnosable mental illness, these red flag early warning symptoms can be frightening and disruptive. So encourage the person to have an evaluation, to learn about mental illness, This is key to receive supportive counseling about daily life and strategies for stress management and to be monitored closely for conditions. You know, what's really great, one silver lining, I guess, of the pandemic is that people are finding more and more that there's online counseling available. I actually discovered it before the pandemic. I live in a town where I don't feel comfortable going and sharing my business, right, with the local professionals. And that's just my own hang up. But there are some really great online resources. BetterHelp is one of them. It's an online counseling service. And there's um, one for couples too. I can't think of the name of it, but uh, my husband and I have used that for marriage counseling in the past as well. And it's really comfortable. It's like a Zoom meeting with your counselor. And so it's set up in your own comfortable space. But whatever works for you, whatever your comfort level is, whatever's going to feel like um, the thing that gets you the most help, the thing that supports you the most, that nourishes you and doesn't deplete you. These are the things that we want to want to look for when we're finding uh, counseling um, or counselor that really resonates with us. As long as you're getting that supportive help, that's what's important. And recognizing that everybody at some point has some, you know, issues, blips in the system. We're all struggling with you know, anxiety on some level, there's a lot of depression out there and it's nothing to feel ashamed about, badly about, you know, it's just part of the human experience. And fortunately we have tools out there that can help us. We don't have to suffer alone. And so I hope today you found some useful resources in this conversation Um, that maybe some of the information will be helpful to you in recognizing some signs and symptoms in yourself or in some loved ones. And ultimately to recognize that you're never, ever alone to reach out if ever you feel that you are and know that your story does not have to end, that your story can and should continue. You have a lot to share And I personally enjoy every time you come and share space and time with me. I've learned a lot in this first season, in these last many months of of podcasting, and I hope you have too. If you've enjoyed this show at all, I hope you will subscribe to it. Stay tuned for season two. Go back and listen to some of the episodes in season one. And as I always say at the end of each show, be good to yourself. Be good to each other. And I really do look forward to a day and time that we can 
get together again. Thank you.